Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, if you'll grab your Bible, we've been in the book of uh, Nehemiah now for a few weeks. And really, this is a leadership course, a leadership course in the Bible, a 2,500-year-old leadership course that we can take and really implement into our lives today, whether, whether we work um, in a school, whether we work in a blue-collar job, you know, down at the plant, whether we work, uh, you know, backhoe, whatever we do in life. This is something that everybody can implement. If you are a mother at home or a father at home taking care of your children, running your family. This is something that you can implement immediately into your life. Well, let's jump right into chapter 2 of Nehemiah. In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city of my fathers are buried in uh, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried, so that I may rebuild her, I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me with safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was upon me, the king granted my request." Now, as we open up in the chapter 2, four months have gone by since chapter 1. It's in the month of Nisan. If you, if you ever looked at the Jewish calendar, they're a little different. But four months have gone by. And Nehemiah has got the news that you know, Jerusalem is a mess. People were discouraged. The walls were torn down. The gates have been burned. It's like it's unprotected and disrespected. God's people look nothing like they're supposed to look. God has a plan for his people. God has a direction that he wants us to take, and our lives are supposed to reflect his will in our lives. 
And unfortunately, because of the sin that they've had, Jerusalem does not reflect who God is and what he wants for them. They were left leaderless and just really a remnant. So Nehemiah, he got the news and he was totally upset. I mean, he was, he was shocked, he was saddened, he was mad that Jerusalem and the people of God were plucked like this. In fact, the, the Hebrew words here uh, really mean stripped of their feathers. So think of a bird being stripped of its feathers. Very undignified, left naked before the world. This is like, you know, your front door's broken down, your garage door's all tilted and off the hinges. This is like you have no windows in your house, no boundaries between your house and your neighbor's house. People come and go as they please. Think of it like that. Very undignified. So Nehemiah, he shows his heart. He cried about this. He wept about it. He, he fasted and he prayed. And four months go by and he's still upset about this issue. And during that time, he took this burden and he handed it over to God. Now in chapter 2, we're going to see God's answer to Nehemiah's prayer. Four months later, and it includes Nehemiah. And this is what I love about Nehemiah, is, is what he shows us in prayer. That God often allows us to be part of the solution to his plan. Even if we thought, you know, why would, why would I be involved? Even if we kind of went, man, something needs to happen there, but I don't know who's going to do it. God allows us to be, you know, be part of the plan. You know, just, we just thought, man, this is just sad. Somebody ought to do something. Then in chapter 2 of our lives, the Lord starts to use us. In chapter 1, we never thought about leaving the king. We had a great job, a great role for him. And then God starts to call us for something new, and this is chapter 2 here. And by that time that God calls him, Nehemiah, he actually wants to do something. I think this is where our fear comes in. We really want to do something for God, and we have these grand plans, and in our head we're sitting there going, I, I really want to be used for God. I really want to do something. But we're so afraid of praying, God, use me. Why are we afraid, of, you know, why are we afraid to say that? Because we think we're off to Africa, right? We think that God has got this, this huge thing and he's going to put us out there by ourselves and, and I'm stuck here now. When it's exactly the opposite, when we say, God, use me, he changes us to actually want what he wants. If he wants to send us to Africa, he will change our heart to, to do that. But most of the time, let me tell you, you're not sent to Africa or you might be for a couple of weeks. God may put, you know, put it on your heart to, to go on a mission trip like that. But most of the time, God wants to use you right where you are at to make change for, for the people's lives that are around you. But God will change our heart to what we will want. This is what God has for us. By chapter 2, Nehemiah wanted to go to Jerusalem. Nehemiah wanted to be used. He was ready to go. He was hoping that God would say, okay, Nehemiah, do it. He takes it to the Lord, and the Lord gives it right back to him. Now, between last week and this week, seven days have gone by for us. But for Nehemiah, it's four months. He waited on God, and I think this is important. He didn't push ahead impatiently. He didn't start strategizing. He didn't start organizing just in case. What Nehemiah did was he started to prepare his heart. His heart. He did find out the issues that he would be facing. 
But it wasn't this big push to, we need to get this done. He was waiting on the Lord. We need to wait on the Lord sometimes. We may be ready, but he may want to involve so-and-so. And until so-and-so is ready, God's like, I don't want to start implementing this plan because I don't want to leave them behind. They need to be a part of this. So we may be ready, but God's plan may not be ready. So we have to wait on the Lord. When we force it, what happens? Well, I can tell you from experience, what I usually do, I make a mess of it when I force the issue. I know you guys would never do that. But God has to come in and clean up my mess because I forced it. You know, we're the microwave generation, aren't we? The other day I was heating something up. And I was so irritated it was taking so long. Even though it has this newfangled thing called a countdown timer on the microwave, I knew there was 27 seconds left. But I'm so irritated. We're we're such a multitasking generation. We try to do everything at once. And it's not necessarily healthy. We don't like waiting. We don't think waiting is God's will. We're constantly looking for the faster lane to drive in. I was out driving yesterday and so irritated when you come up to that one vehicle. You know, the, it's 55 miles per hour and they're going 47. What are you thinking? Oh, so irritated. We don't like waiting. Well, Nehemiah waited and kept doing his job as cupbearer to the king. It says here, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And then Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. Now, we would read this and and we would think, why would he be afraid? He's around the king every day. Well, you've got to understand, he's been putting on this happy smile around the king every time he goes into the king's presence because you can't be sad around the king. You have to be at your best. You've got to be at the 100%. You cannot be upset whatsoever. Persian culture was all about image. I know that we cannot understand that in today's culture. But then one day he goes into the king's presence and he just can't help it. His, his face, you can just read it all over his face. To be unhappy around the king is like you're unhappy with the king himself. This is a big deal. And the king goes, why are you unhappy? The king was curious because Nehemiah had never violated this unwritten rule. He had never gone into his presence like this. There are protocols for you entering into the throne room or into the presence of the king. Now Nehemiah also knew that this was his moment. He had had four months of prayer, four months of of thinking about this, four months of communicating with God and finally getting the feeling, okay, God, you're going to give me the chance. When the time comes, give me that, you know, give me that wisdom to, to know what to say. Give me that, you know, I'm ready to do this. Back me up here, Lord. And now it's time to do something. God was saying, speak up, Nehemiah. You know, it's easy for us to pray, but it's harder for us to actually implement these things, isn't it? It's easy for us to say, well, well, Lord, give me the words. And when the time comes, we're just like, well, I don't want to say anything. I'll just keep my mouth shut here. Because that's how we are. He knew it was time to do something. This was a new idea for the king to hear. 
Now, another reason why you wouldn't automatically get, or you wouldn't automatically get from this is earlier in Artaxerxes' kingship, he issued a decree concerning Jerusalem. And Nehemiah knew about this. Artaxerxes got a letter from a guy named Rahum, an official in Samaria. And Rahum's letter, in fact, I'm going to read part of it, but they, you know, the people were, in Jerusalem were starting to rebuild the walls. And Rahum thought, this is, not, this is not a good idea. And we find this letter in, a, in, a, in Ezra 4. In Ezra 4, verse 9, and I don't have a slide for it, but it says, Rahum the commanding officer to King Artaxerxes, from your servants, the men of trans-Euphrates, the king should know that the Jews who came up, uh, come up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding the rebellious and wicked city. They're restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, king, you should know that this city is built and the walls are restored. No more taxes, no more tributes or duty will be paid. The royal revenues will suffer. King, if you allow them to do this, we're not going to get our money out of them. And then you go down to verse 14, it says, Now since we are under obligation to the palace, and it's not proper for us to see the king dishonored, i.e., we're doing it right, they're doing it wrong, we're sending this message to inform the king so that you may search, so a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that the city is a rebellious city. In other words, we've been in control for a long time, they keep fighting us. They, they're just a rebellious city. Troublesome to kings to provinces, and the place of rebellion from ancient times. This is why the city was destroyed in the first place, king. We inform the king that the city is built and the walls are restored. You will be left nothing in the trans-Euphrates. Sincerely yours, Rahum. Well, the king replied, and he said to Rahum, the commanding officer, the letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made. And it's found that the city has had a long history of revolt and rebellion against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole trans-Euphrates. Powerful kings. Who, who is that? David and Solomon. Yeah, they're going back. Powerful kings of the whole trans-Euphrates. And taxes and tributes and duty were paid to them. In other words, not to us. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that the city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? Now Rahim, what he did was he took an army and by force he stopped the Jews from rebuilding. That's what he did. Nothing has been done to the walls since. And that's why all these people are, are, are just, you know, they're just downtrodden because of it. The Jews have no protection whatsoever. So Nehemiah knows all about this. So I can understand why he's afraid in front of the king's presence. Because the king has issued an order. Nothing is to be done there. And he's bringing up, hey, I want to go back and I want to rebuild it. Kings don't like to change their minds. Presidents don't like to change their minds. All presidents are like this, not just the current administration. You go in there and say, well, we really did this bad. They're not going to admit it. They're going to say everything, but we were wrong. So Nehemiah, to bring this up, man, there's no turning back now. Either the king will listen or demote him 
or literally throw him into prison or kill him for questioning the order of the king. However, Nehemiah has been fasting and praying since chapter 1, verse 11. Do you remember this verse? O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of the servant of your, uh, of, of your servant here and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He's been praying this for four months. Now, last week we began a, 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 a kind of a, a list of principles for leaders. And last week we found out that effective leaders are passionate about the problem. They're, they're, they're passionate about what's in front of them. We also figured out that effective leaders are not afraid to show genuine emotions. Not manipulation, but genuine emotions. And then also effective leaders go to God for help. So we have this 2,500-year-old leadership training course here. And we're going to add a few from chapter 2. Effective leaders wait for the right timing. Did, you know, some people get this. Some people don't. Some people just walk up and they interrupt you and they just, they have no idea about timing. They have no idea about relationships and, and boundaries or anything like that. But effective leaders understand timing. Timing is crucial. It is everything. Sometimes it's not what you say it. It's when you actually say it. So effective leaders wait for the right timing. And when it comes, it leads us to the fifth principle. Effective leaders push through their fears. If God is ever going to use you in leadership, you've got to get through those fears that you have. Well, what if no one follows? What if no one listens? What if, what if, what if, what if? You've got to deal with those fears if you are going to be an effective leader in this world. If you've never experienced fear, I have to ask your, uh, have to, you have to ask yourself a question. Lord, am I really doing what you want me to do in this life? Am I really doing what you want me to do in this job? If I, if I have no fear whatsoever, Lord, are, are, you know, is my walk with you okay? Am I on the right path? And as we push through that fear, we start to see God moving, and we find ourselves moving right along beside of him. And it's a phenomenal thing. So the king says, well, what is up with you, Nehemiah? Why the long face? Why are you upset? And Nehemiah said, I said to the king, may the king live forever. Let's get that through there. You know, I mean, the king just noticed, may the king live forever. Let's, let's get that out there. Why should my face not look sad when the city of my fathers are buried and, are buried and lie in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? There's no turning back now. He's put it out there. The king said to me, what is it you want and then I prayed to the God of heaven. I'm sure this was a very quick prayer. It's not like he said, okay, King, can, can you wait a second? Let me, go, let me bow my head. Oh, Lord. You know, it's not like, you know, for some reason we think a prayer, we have to bow our heads. No, it's not true. You can talk to God anytime. It was a short, quick prayer. Now, notice something about Nehemiah's answer. He doesn't mention Jerusalem at all. He's been going over in his mind what to say. Have you ever done this? You got a meeting, 
You're driving to that meeting and you're just going over and over and over. Okay, well, if you're like me, you got my type of personality, you've been thinking about it since the night before and all night long when you wake up, you're thinking about that. Okay, what am I going to say? How am I going to say it? That's what Nehemiah has been doing. How to say this. He avoids the word Jerusalem. How could I be happy? He appeals to the king's decency here. He knew what to say. He knew when to say it. And he knew how to say it. And this is principle number six. Effective leaders know what to say, when to say it, and how to say it. And literally who to say it to. Ineffective leaders don't care, you know, really don't care who they say things to. They just open their mouth and they start talking. And everybody knows about it because they're out telling anybody who will listen. And usually they're really talkative people to begin with. And you're just like, okay, okay, well, I'm not the one. Why are you telling me? I'm not the one dealing with this. But effective leaders know who to say something to and when to say it and how to say it. Some people will even say to effective leaders, well, why are you hiding that? Why haven't you told everybody? Why are you being secret when really, literally, it's, it's about timing? Maybe everybody doesn't need to know it yet. So effective leaders know how to uh, you know, walk that fine line. And then number seven, effective leaders know how to approach their superiors. They don't say it in an accusing way. They don't just blurt it out in front of a a whole group when it should be a private conversation. They're concerned about how their superior will feel about it. Nehemiah is like, may the king live forever. He found common ground with the king. He knew how to approach the person. He knew how to approach the king. He still recognized that he needed to show respect to the king. Respect is key. I think I need to speak a little bit to the, this issue about how we're so casual in California. Now, I don't mind because I grew up wearing a three-piece suit until you know, I was 16 in church. And then I graduated slacks and a tie. You know, I mean, they, just very, you, you, certain ways. In California, I mean... Uh, last week for Aloha Sunday, I wore my flip-flops. I was surprised I didn't get any comments off of it because we're so casual. But there is a time to show respect to those that are in charge of something. There's a difference between flattery and respect, and we have to know that difference. But to show true respect and address someone over you as your superior to say, I would like to do this. What what do you think? You know, I've been trying to figure this out. I I have a suggestion. Instead of saying, we need to do this this way. You know, most of us are, well, let me tell you how it should be done. And we use words like always. Well, this always happens. Well, no, it doesn't. This always, no, it does. You know how to really get a spouse upset or a child upset? Well, you always. Well, no, that's not true. Come up with some concrete things there, but the word always is not a good word in those situations. But if you figure out a way to say it, where the boss knows that you're submitting to him, the boss will turn around and say, well, well how can we figure this out? Okay, this, you, you brought this up, so let's figure this out. The king said to me, what is it you want? Artaxerxes just said, what do you need? Four months of prayer, and in two sentences, 
Man, Nehemiah's got to be feeling like, wow, I need, to, I need to do this more often. I need to come to the king more often about this. But it's not manipulation here. There's a difference here. What does Nehemiah do? He prays. He takes a quick second and says, Lord, help me out here. Give me the right words to say. And he probably doesn't close his eyes or bow his head. And in Proverbs 21.1, it says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like the water course wherever he pleases. In other words, like a river. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Take that one the next time you have to go meet with your boss. Or go into that committee meeting. Or that staff meeting. The king, I mean, the Lord can control the king's mind as he controls a river. Think about that as you think about elections and presidents and senators and congressmen and all this kind of stuff. Think about that when you start to pray for the leaders of this country and this world. And this leads us to principle number eight. Effective leaders know who ultimately is in charge, and that is God. They know that God is in charge. Who is in charge of your company? Whether you're running it or somebody else is running it, who's in charge of ultimately in your, uh, your company? God is. Who is in charge of your school? Maybe it's a college or a high school. God is. Who is in charge of your family? Great, three families. God is in charge. No, who's in charge of your family? God is. See, that is our problem. We think God has left and left us in charge. God got it all straightened out. Well, thanks, God. We'll see you later. And we forget that God wants to be in charge. He just wants us to ask him to help. You know, right now with Brandon, we're trying to get him to use his words. And, you know, he, he, we started a list, and I, I know I'm, I'm one of these parents, and he, he has said like 112 words so far. And every time he says a new word, I just jot it down, or at least it does. But he doesn't always know what to say. But as a good father, I give things to him that he really likes. Lisa was out of town last week, so where did I take him? Oh, Jamba Juice. Oh, he loved that. All the way, and, and, and for kids, it's great because they give them their own little cups. You know, they don't even make you charge, you know, they don't even make you buy an extra one. You just say, give the extra to, in a little cup for him, and they'll do that. Well, all the way home uh, in, in the car, he kept wanting my cup and then his cup. So I'm like reaching back, switching with him. He'd take a swallow and go, Dada. And I had to hand him back the other cup. We kept switching all the way home. But as, you know, as, as a good father, I wanted to please him. I wanted him, to, you know, I want him to be joyful. Our Father in heaven wants us to be joyful. All we need to do is ask him for, for help in our lives. If you're a teenager or a young adult, and there's a few here, I want you to think about this. Don't ever stop asking your parents for advice. Yes, by age 30, you ought to be making your own decisions. I get that. But go to your parents and at least ask them for advice because they have more life learning than you do. They've gone through different situations. They can tell you how they handled it right and sometimes how they can, heaven forbid, handled it wrong. But then you have to make a choice. But if you're not a wise person, you're going to stop asking your parents for their advice. And that's a foolish thing. 
Same thing for, for us as Christians. When we stop asking our Heavenly Father for advice and help, we become foolish Christians. So it's foolish not to go to our Heavenly Father. Well, then he said, if it pleases the king, again, he's showing respect. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, and again, he hasn't mentioned Jerusalem, to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried so that I may rebuild it. I need a leave of absence here, king. I know I'm, I'm your, your, your top man here. I'm the, the, the last line of defense, uh, you know, I'm somebody trying to kill you. But I need a leave of absence. And by the way, could, could you write me a letter? Verse 6, it says, Then the king with the queen setting beside him. And the queen setting beside him is very important here. This is a private family meal. Now, how do we know that? Well, from our studies of, of the Persian culture when we went through the book of Esther, we remember that anytime there was a public meal, the men would eat in one place and the women would, would eat in another place. They would have two banquet halls because the men and women did not mix at mealtime in public. Why is that? I don't know. Somebody set up a stupid rule, you know, a silly little thing. So we know that this is a private family meal here. This is God's timing because the other leaders are not there at this meal. They can't object and say, well, wait a second, Judah, isn't that Jerusalem? Didn't you, didn't you write a letter about that city? They, they're always causing problems. But if you're not there, you can't object. See, God has arranged this. This is a private meeting. And this is not manipulation. This is God's timing. There are times when God will put us in the same car, the same meeting, or the same place when it's time to make a decision. And we're probably all thinking, why am I even here? Why am I even at this meeting? Why? I, I shouldn't be involved in this. But God has got you there for a reason. He says to Nehemiah, how long will this journey take and when will you get back? He just turned the whole thing over to Nehemiah. Well, how long is it going to take? What's your schedule? But when you think about this, Nehemiah should not be surprised here. Because the king started trusting Nehemiah years ago. This is the first time that we've ever heard of that, that Nehemiah has asked for something. And again, Nehemiah is the last man in the line of defense. The king trusts him. So now Nehemiah is a trusted guy. He walks into the, you know, the king's presence with a sad face. And the king says, hey, trusted guy that I respect, what is up with you? What's, what's the deal with that face? And Nehemiah tells him, the next thing you know, things are in play. And one of the reasons is that Nehemiah has a great reputation with the king. And this brings us to another principle. I think it's number nine, I think. Effective leaders build a solid reputation. If you want to change an organization, treat the leader with respect and courtesy. You know who's not really listened to in a company or in a job? The one who complains a lot. The one who's, who's really not involved or engaged. You know, I, I can remember... In, in some of my younger years and different positions I, I've had, there was one boss, man. I just, I, to be honest with you, I couldn't stand the guy as a boss. We, we, got, we got along. We went on vacation. We great together. Hey, let's go fishing. We, we love to hang out. But as a boss, he was so inept. And, and this is not just me. Multiple people felt like this. 
And I, and I would go into meetings, and I would just, I mean, you could just see the look on my face. It's like I'm practically rolling my eyes at my boss. And guess what? Over time, he stopped listening to me. Effective leaders know how to show respect, even if the boss is inept. It's all about reputation. The great, you know, the way to have a great reputation is to engage. Engage in meetings. Be a part of the meeting. Not, not be, you know, just there but not involved. Start making good decisions in your own life before you start telling other people how they should, you know, what should be happening in theirs. Become a trusted person. Do what's best for the company and the people around you. That's how you build a great reputation. Effective leaders and this is number 10, don't look just at the bottom line. They get there in the right way. They know that the end doesn't always justify the means. They need to do things the right way in order to succeed. Nehemiah had a great reputation. And this is why he could go into the king's presence and he doesn't get kicked out because he's got this long face. He's upset. You know, people can tell when you don't want to be somewhere. How? It says it all right here. When, when you don't want to be involved in something, I mean, people can see it. They can see it in your body language. They can see it in your conversation, how you say something, how you bring up something. The king could tell something was bothering Nehemiah because it was written all over his face. He goes on and says, How long will your journey take and when will you be back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to, to Asaph, the key, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I occupy or I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was upon me, the king granted my request. Nehemiah had done his homework. He didn't get ahead of God, but he did his homework. He knew what it would take to get the job done. And then he waited for the perfect timing of God to bring it up. Even though he worked out what to say, how to say it, he worked out when to say it. He says here, the only reason I had success was because of what? The gracious hand of my God was upon me. He didn't go, man, I said this to the king, and then I said this to the king, and I had him eating out of my hand, and everybody was going, man, Nehemiah, you are the man. He didn't act like that. No. This is how so many of us are. We come home from a successful thing, and we tell everybody how great we are and how we did it all. And we've already blown it. Because everyone is saying, man, you're, you're great, you're right. Nehemiah knew that he was blessed by God in his life. And that's why he was successful. And this awareness allowed God to use him and elevate him into a, to a, a position of respect. By chapter 5, we will see Nehemiah. He's the governor of Judah. And he's never even been to the place. Never. He wasn't even born there. By chapter 5, he's the man in charge. God is putting him there because God can trust him. Well, I, I'd really like to be in that position. 
Well, can God trust you in that position? I'd really like to be the one in charge. Well, can God trust you when you're in charge? What happens when you succeed? Would you take the glory or do you give it to God? Number 11, effective leaders are know that they are blessed by God. And this leads us to number 12. Effective leaders never take God's glory. A good leader will deflect compliments or they'll graciously accept them, but they won't go, yeah, you're, you're right, I'm great. And sometimes when you give somebody a compliment, you can tell that's what they're thinking. You read it on their face. They will be humble or humble and, you know, about the compliment. This is a great, Lord, a great prayer. God, humble me. How many of us are willing to say, God, humble me? Some of us are going, I don't know if I want to say that prayer because I don't know what God will do to humble me. Humble me so I can become a great leader that you want me to be in this life. If you want to be a great leader, start praying, God, humble me. Think about this whole presentation by Nehemiah. He did his homework. When God gave him the floor, when God said, now's the time, he took it and he said the right things. He didn't say, well, I'm not sure what I need. Let, let, let me think about this, king. Well, what do you think I need, king? He didn't go into any of that. He, did, you know, he knew exactly what he needed. Nehemiah got the vision from God. He took it and then ran with it. He was ready. If you're going to be asked to express your thoughts, be ready. Do your homework. Never show up to a meeting and just talk on the fly. Never just, just go, well, I, no, I, I don't need to prepare. I can handle this. No, you need to be ready for that meeting. Be ready to say, this is what I have. Nothing is worse than the boss feeling like you could care less. And how can you tell you're not prepared? You haven't done your homework. We love to, to do the things that we love to work on, don't we? Oh, I really love this project. Oh, really? And we work hard on that. But this other project that the boss is making me do, or that I have to do, or the state's mandated for me to do, or whatever your job is, I don't really... Uh, we just kind of just do it because we have to do it. Man, we love to ignore the things we don't care about. How about we get ready for the things that, that the boss cares about? Then when it comes time for, 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 you know, for what you really care about, the boss is more likely to listen to you when you have input because you cared about the things that he cared about. Nehemiah is ready. Oh, oh, king, you know, here's, here's my timeline. Here. Great uh, timeline. Great, you, you agree. Good, good. Okay, here are the people that need to hear from you. Can you, can you write these letters here? I, actually, I've already got them written. Oh, oh, you, just sign right here, triplicate here, here, and here, initial here. Great, it's all done. By the way, here are the resources I need. There's a guy named Asept. He, he, he's the director of the forest, uh, so I can take some trees. I need, I need the trees to rebuild this. What is the leadership principle here? Well, he knew Asep's name. Effective leaders are well prepared. Now, I don't mean workaholics. I don't mean ignoring all your other duties at home and, and, and all your friendships and all those things. I don't mean workaholic, but you are prepared. Nehemiah prayed and prepared for four months. And this is the key. He prayed and also prepared. 
I think sometimes our prayers are not answered because we only pray. We only pray. We, we, we never prepare. We, never, we say, God, help me, and not say, okay, God, help me, and here's what I've been thinking about if it's your will. Either we jump ahead and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do about it, or we don't prepare at all. And we need to prepare and say, God, if I get the chance, this is how I'm going to do it. And what happens is, over time, God molds our will with his will. And our desires become God's desires because he put those in our heart. You know, we just learned in Ephesians that God works through us. Do you remember what Paul said? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is work or that is at work within us. God wants to use us. So now you need to decide, do I want to be an effective leader? Do I want to take the things that Nehemiah has been going through and implement those into my life, into my job, into my home? Because all this is for nothing, all this teaching the last few weeks, it means nothing unless we go to God and say, Lord, help me learn this stuff. Help me implement this stuff. Help me put this into work in my life and my family and my job because I want to be an effective leader for you. Let's pray. Lord, so often we want to be that leader, but we're unwilling to pray about it. We're unwilling to do our homework. We're unwilling to care about the things that our bosses care about. We're unwilling to follow your principles. Yet we all say we want to be used by you. I pray that you start to change us into willing beings. That our desires are your desires. That we have a desire to be effective in our home. That we have a desire to be effective in our job. The right way. Not through manipulation, Lord. But that through your timing that we get things done. I pray, Lord, that you teach us how to prepare our hearts, prepare the things that we need to have to get our jobs done, no matter where it is, whether it's in school, out of school, whether it's in the home, in the office, that we not ignore you in those places, that we go from thinking about you on Sunday to thinking about you on Monday morning and Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning and so on, Lord that we take you with us into our lives and not leave you here at church. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine down upon you. May he never turn from you. May he be gracious to you. And may he teach you his ways in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.